From the studios of KPFK in Los Angeles, Pacifica Radio, welcome to Poets Cafe. Robert Pinsky is a poet, essayist, translator, teacher, and speaker. His first two terms as United States Poet Laureate were marked by such visible dynamism and such national enthusiasm in response that the Library of Congress appointed him to an unprecedented third term. Throughout his career, Robert Pinsky has been dedicated to identifying and invigorating poetry's place in the world. Known worldwide, Pinsky's work has earned him the Penn Volcker Award, the William Carlos Williams Prize, the Lenore Marshall Prize, Italy's Premio Capri, the Korean Manhe Award, and the Harold Washington Award from the City of Chicago, among other accolades. Pinsky is a professor of English and creative writing in the graduate writing program at Boston University. His newest book is a collection of poetry entitled At the Foundling Hospital, out on Farrar, Strauss, and Giraud. Samurai Song. When I had no roof, I made audacity my roof. When I had no supper, my eyes dined. When I had no eyes, I listened. When I had no ears, I thought. When I had no thought, I waited. When I had no father, I made care my father. When I had no mother, I embraced order. When I had no friend, I made quiet my friend. When I had no enemy, I opposed my body. When I had no temple, I made my voice my temple. I have no priest, my tongue is my choir. When I have no means, fortune is my means. When I have nothing, death will be my fortune. Need is my tactic. Detachment is my strategy. When I had no lover, I courted my sleep. Welcome. It's an honor mm. to have you on our show, Robert. Thank you so much, Lois. Pleasure to be talking to you. You and another previous poet laureate, Rita Dove, were a central part of the large gathering on the steps of the New York Library for the Writers Resist speakers prior to Donald Trump's inauguration. Yes. For our audience, uh, what is the Writers Resist movement and how might it address some of the political miasma going on around the globe right now? That, uh, that event, which was reflected by events all over the country, writers in particular at that event were inaugurating resistance to falsehood. We can hope that uh, the degree of falsehood and fabrication will become smaller, but there's not a great likelihood in that. There are likely to be a lot of lies right? Um, and fabrications. I guess the distinction I'm making is between a lie like I never made fun of the disabled guy mm-hmm. and a fabrication is I won by a landslide. Right. Um, so there are different degrees of falsehood. Yes. And you as a broadcaster, I as a poet, anybody who has to do with law We work with words, Mm -hmm. and it's profoundly our job to try to defend the truth. That's right. The form in which we do that will vary, 
and Rita and I and the many other wonderful writers on that occasion in New York, including Michael Cunningham, Francine Prose, mm -hmm. the brilliant Art Spiegelman, many people. Um, one way and another, we were trying to appeal to the long human tradition in poetry and in other forms as well of um, taking courage from truth. And yes. Truth. And you were quoted as saying, those of us who use words professionally have a certain stake in the truth. Yeah, I think truth, uh, <laughs> for what it's <laughs> worth, I've devoted my life to try and get as close as I can to uh, musical grace in language and truth in language. And I can't say I always succeed at both, but that's the effort. Right. And um, we, have, we have great models. We do. And, and yourself included. Um, and we're, you know, this is huge movement happening right now uh, across the U.S. and really worldwide because everyone's looking at us and to us in our response to um, countering the lies uh, that are starting to come in and uh, also our stance on, on justice and um, the importance and what we as writers and poets can do in the world as far as drawing attention uh, to these issues. What I find myself doing is thinking about the ancestors, the predecessors. Yes. And um, the poem that I wrote for that occasion of Writers Resist really is just a kind of, um, it's a deeply traditional attempt to say, these are my forebears. Perfect. This is, this is my grandma, this is my grandpa, and they're going to help me get through a bad time. And I was very happy to see that CNN had published it um, just just yesterday, I think it was. Yes, CNN put it on their opinion page. I think it's the first time I ever published a poem where the introduction of the poem said, uh, the opinions presented here are those of Robert Pinsky. <laughs> 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 yes, yes, yes. Um, and I thought, you're damn right. <laughs> damn right. And would you uh, care to read that for Sure, us? I'll be happy to do Great. that. Great. Exile and Lightning. You choose your ancestors, wrote our ancestor, Ralph Ellison. Now, my fellow descendants, we endure a moment of charismatic indecency and sanctimonious greed, falsehood beyond shame. Our Polish grandfather, Czesław Miłosz, and our African-American grandmother, Gwendolyn Brooks, endured worse than this. Fight first, then fiddle, she wrote. Our great-grandmother, Emma Lazarus, wrote that the flame of the lamp of the mother of exiles is, quote, imprisoned lightning. Mm. My fellow children of exile and lightning, the indecency does construct its own statuary. But our uncle, Ernesto Cardinal says, Sabemos que el pueblo la derribará un día. The people will tear it down. Miwosh says, Beautiful and very young, meaning recent, 
are poetry and philosophia, meaning science, her ally in the service of the good. Their enemies, he wrote, have delivered themselves to destruction. Un dia, and very young, that long ancestral view of time. Inheritors, el pueblo, my fellow exiles, all the quicker our need to fight and make music, as Gwendolyn Brooks wrote, to civilize a space. Thank you, Robert. That was very powerful. That was great. So far, so good. So far, so great. For those of you just tuning in, this is host Lois P. Jones. We're here on KPFK's Poets Cafe with three-time poet laureate Robert Pinsky. From your lectures in Democracy, Culture, and the Voice of Poetry, you say it's been proposed that culture determines the power of a nation to achieve economic development and that cultural more than political differences underlie electoral contests. We can see this is played out in our latest election. So within the schism and plurality of differences, do you think tensions will continue to grow or do you see a way toward any semblance of unity? In that poem I referred to uh, Czesław Miłosz who did see a Nazi takeover of his country and Gwendolyn Brooks who did endure the years of Jim Crow and uh, extreme racism and extremes of injustice, including lynchings. Um, In that long view, we feel like amending the long view to saying, yes, but in the meantime, there's so much damage. There's so much damage. So much goes wrong. It's like I feel like a goalie, you know, like where's the puck going to enter and how can I block it? You know. But the project of the United States in many ways is this dialectical gaining and failing cultural project. Mm -hmm. It's become a sort of inflammatory cliche to say we're a great country. But it's not quite the same as being a great nation. Yes. Our great people. And the project is, yes, our military power is great, our economic power is great. We are embarked on the project of becoming a people. And the racial divide is only the most egregious example of that project. We are not one people by blood. We are not one people by religion. We are in the conception of those Enlightenment rationalists who not only wrote the Constitution but established the nature of the country. We are embarked on the project of becoming a people. And this gives a particular importance to our film, our poetry, our music, our language. American culture is central you could argue, in a special sense, in a way that's different from, say, um, a country like Japan, where, to my understanding, uh, it is a people, and it's a people very much by blood, by long tradition. Uh, We are different from that, and there are ways that's difficult and problematic, and there are ways in which it's hopeful. Yes. And um, the cultural power of the entertainment industry, of 
academic institutions, cultural power largely focused on the two coasts, but not entirely. Mm -hmm. I know you're a native Chicagoan. Mm -hmm, right. And some people used to refer to Ann Arbor as the third coast. <laughs> uh, but we do have that project, and it's incumbent for it not to become snobbery. Yes. It's important that that project incorporate what you might call the kind of uh, demotic genius of American art. After all, things like all of our popular music and jazz, which all comes from uh, the blues, mm -hmm. our blue jeans, our uh, film industry, which was created by uh, poorly educated Jewish entrepreneurs who invented the whole cowboy thing of uh, duel in the sun and who fired first. <laughs> if you read the actual accounts of what those <laughs> cowboys were doing, you know, missing one another and shooting crazily, it's, right. a, it's a weird legalistic kind of a Talmudic <laughs> uh, conception that formed our industry, that the vitality of American life is largely based in vulgarity. Mm. And in my art of poetry, the uh, peculiarity of... Uh, our great models from Emily Dickinson and Walt Whitman continuing through William Carlos Williams, Marianne Moore, there's a, a crazy eclecticism and the heterogeneity, the mixing of unlike things is part of our genius and uh, I try to have some hope for that. I don't want to sound too sunny uh, let me say that I think the best phrase in my poem, which I did not write, mm -hmm. and the poem that I read to you, Exile and Lightning, is the phrase charismatic indecency. So that um, some remark that uh, is indecent in relation to uh, relation between sexes, uh, indecent in relation to someone who's disabled, just that some offense kind of basic. <laughs> standards right. uh, also exerts a charisma, the, the daring of it. And uh, I have to say that I am grateful to my wife, Dr. Ellen Pinsky, for coining that phrase. <laughs> <laughs> I said to her immediately, am I allowed to steal that for a poem? <laughs> and it is, it is stolen with permission. Right. Well, you know, she's the one that can do it, right? <laughs> Um, and speaking to this encompassing view that you have, that we all ha want to have, uh, you have a particular legacy, which I think is one of the greatest literary legacies of our American culture, and that is the Favorite Poem Project. The website, favoritepoem.org, mm -hmm. uh, poem singular, favoritepoem.org. You don't see poets reading poems. You don't see actors reading poems. You don't see professors of poetry talking about poems. And believe me, some of my best friends are actors and poets and professors. But what you see is a construction worker reading the poetry of Walt Whitman yes. and commenting upon it in a very cogent way. You see um, a Vietnam War veteran who was a pilot went to the wall in D.C., first time be able to bring himself there, and he read Yusuf Komenyaka's great poem, At the Wall. Mm -hmm. And you'll see a glassblower read a Frank O'Hara poem, and a Jamaican immigrant read uh, a Sylvia Plath. And I the, love that one. They're all great. Uh, go yeah, ahead, I'm sorry. I am very proud of them. Yes. And uh, 
anybody who says, oh, Americans don't like poetry, go to favoritepoem.org. Do it, do it. Uh, listening audience, it's beautiful. I, I've, I've known of it. I spent a lot of time at the website recently, and I was so absolutely moved. And there were 18,000 Americans, uh, apparently, that volunteered to share their favorite poems. There's they a huge came in response to almost no advertising budget at all. Amazing. Just any time I was interviewed, like right now, I would uh, mention that we were looking for volunteers. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got those 18,000 letters with, I often say, the advertising budget was about $11. Yes. And here's a good, another great example. The woman who was a Supreme Court justice. Yes. Uh, and she read a specific poem which changed her life mm-hmm. uh, and made her work toward uh, that, that idea of justice and wanting to be a part of it. It's an example of how this art gets, in a way, literally under your skin. Yes. Poetry can show images as well as film. It can create emotion as immediately as music, but it gets right into your mouth. It gets right into your ears. Uh, the medium for a poem, I think those videos demonstrate, is the reader's breath. Yes. And the reader, so the poem, the poem may technically be by Langston Hughes or Emily Dickinson. When the reader is saying it, it happens. It mm-hmm. happens inside that. It happens mm-hmm. each time someone imagines saying those words. And, and they become the instrument. Exactly. And it's like a pianist who's interpreting Mozart or whatever. Yes, or except you don't have to be an artist. <laughs> you just have to be yourself. That's true. And But they, as a poet, and observing that, they become a poet. I mean, they become this voice uh, that is just... I say to young poets that your ambition should not be so much to have your poem read on the TV or to have you become the equivalent of a star singer-songwriter. Your ambition is to be as Sylvia Plath is to that Jamaican guy who reads her poem. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, Who never thought that he'd be able to relate to this woman. He talks about how different they are. Yes. And how meaningful the poem is to him. Yeah, that's absolutely terrific. I don't know if you if you heard this, but when it was announced that Donald Trump, w- who well became president-elect Donald Trump, I should say, uh, the poem went viral on social media called "Differences of Opinion." Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, interesting, and it's good to see that kind of thing happening, where people are looking to poetry and poets. Um, for an answer and for some way to relate what's happening uh, it is in the world. It is odd, isn't it, how poetry turns out to be very well suited to uh, digital media, unlike a big, big long Victorian novel. <laughs> <laughs> it fits on the screen rather well, right. and uh, the audio uh, is there as well. And uh, it may be that the Trump administration is now becoming a third to the occasions when people are always asking me for poetry, funerals and weddings. <laughs> right. For those of you just tuning in, this is host Lois P. Jones. We're here on KPFK's Poets Cafe with three-time poet laureate Robert Pinsky. Um, you, you place, as you say, you know, we're talking about the person reciting the poem, and you place a large importance on the vocal aspects of poetry. 
and also its music. Um, you're a lover of jazz, and you've performed with jazz musicians. So tell me about that aspect of uh, improvisation. And is, when you work with the jazz musicians, is it is it like a Bill Evans trio kind of thing? Or are you just, you know, I hope it's musical. Mm -hmm. My first ambition was to be a musician. I hope it's not just that I'm reading with musical background. Uh, there are two CDs, Poem Jazz and House Hour, that I did with the great pianist Lawrence Hubgood. And when we work either in a performance and when we were in the studio on the uh, desk of the, of the piano, Lawrence has the text of the poem. Mm. And he knows that depending upon what I hear from him, I might repeat a phrase, I might create a refrain out of a phrase, uh, and as with jazz players, we never do it the same way twice. Right. So the, we may do it the same poem, but we won't do it exactly the same way as you hear it on the CD. Music is about listening, mm -hmm. and I'm trying to listen very hard to what Lawrence does. He's listening to my voice, and uh, he. I've worked with other, I've worked locally here with Bobby Bradford. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, we did a show at the Hammer, and Bobby also got it immediately right. that this is not about writing a term paper about the poem, mm -hmm. but um, hearing the rhythms. So if I say in the poem that I read at your open, when I had no roof, I'm in audacity, my roof. When I had no supper, my eyes dined. My eyes dined is like a little musical phrase. Sure. We use pitch in English. Mm -hmm. But ba 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 Right. And uh, when I had no something, I may have man, man. Mm -hmm. uh, And <laughs> yeah. it's the difference between lightning and lightning mm -hmm. is in, with pitch. So for me, I've never been a very good planner. Mm -hmm. uh, improvisation is a kind of normal state for me, and I don't feel like I can write effectively if I'm planning too much. Right. I need to listen to the vowels and consonants, and they'll help me figure out what I'm going to say next. <laughs> and um, for me, it is not even exactly the reader's voice. It's that moment when you're thinking what you're going to say next. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to say, what else should we talk about, Lois? And before I say that, mm -hmm. somewhere between my mind and my body, before my lips and my breath actually do that, that's where you read a poem. That's where you read it. Yeah. So there was a, a beautiful piece, a uh, video that I saw on YouTube, and I hope our listeners will go to it. But Robert was doing an improvisation with the musicians. It's part of his city elegies, I believe, and yeah. uh, this is just yeah. great, great. Uh, great musicians I did this with. Uh, uh, John Lockwood on bass, uh, Lawrence Hopgood on piano, and the great Stan Strickland, wonderful tenor saxophone player and flautist. And uh, they did that little Arabic uh, scale mm -hmm. behind this poem, uh, the poem Street Music. Street Music, Sweet Babylon, Headphones, Song Bones, At a slate stairway's base, alone and unready, Not far from the taxis and bars around the old stone station, In the bronze, ordinary afternoon light, 
to find yourself back behind that real city and inside this other city where you slept in the street. You slept in the street. Your bare feet. Gray tunic of a child. Coarse sugar of memory. Coarse sugar of memory. Salt Nineveh of barrows and stalls. The barber with his copper bowl. Beggars grain cellars, the alley of writers of letters in different dialects, the stands of the ear cleaner, the tailor, the spicer, the reign of Ashur Banipal, hemp woman, whore merchant, hand porter, errand boy, child sold from a doorway, coarse sugar of memory, salt Nineveh of barrows and stalls, candy Memphis of exile and hungers. Candy Memphis of exile and hungers, honey calends and drays, syrup sellers, sicknesses, runes, donkeys, yams, tunes on the mouth harp, shuffles and rags, healer, dealer, drunkard, fresh water, sewage. Wherever you died in the market, sometimes your soul flows out, a hunting up out of you, a hunting for buried cakes here in the city. Yeah, love it, love it, love it. Coarse sugar of memory. And a good poem like that doesn't even need accompaniment. Of course, it's great when you hear the musicians interacting. Well, they do things in response to it, and then I hear it, hear it another way. Yeah. To demonstrate what I said about the physical, bodily part of poetry, here's a poem that Walter Savage Landor wrote a couple of hundred years ago. Two lines on love, on grief, on every human thing. Time sprinkles Lethe's water with his wing. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being here. Our guest today has been Robert Pinsky. This is host Lois P. Jones. Many thanks to our producer, Melina Bond. Look for us on the Poets Cafe fan page on Facebook. You've been listening to Poets Cafe on Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond. When I have nothing, death will be my fortune. Need is my tactic. Detachment is my strategy. When I had no lover, I courted my sleep. <laughs>